The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Amen, church. Let's take our Bibles this morning, turn to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. In the last chapter of that book, 2 Corinthians chapter number 14, 13, excuse me. (laughs) Don't want to do what we did in Acts the other day. 2 Corinthians chapter number 13. So, I'm going to uh, read the text. The, the, the text today is verse 14, but let me back up and just finish from verse number 11. The Bible says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, being made complete, being comforted, being like-minded. Uh, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And then we ought to practice this every week, greet each other with a holy kiss. No, I'm just messing with you. Just greet each other in love. And then look at verse number 13. All the saints greet you. And here is the verse of Scripture for uh, this Sunday. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father, I come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this um, for my own self, and I likewise through that for those that are in attendance today in this congregation. I pray that we would abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would make our home in Him, that we would dwell in Him, that You would give us a boldness, a boldness from the Word of God, a boldness in the understanding of Your very nature, a boldness to share the Gospel. We pray now as we open Your Word that You would give us the illumination of the Spirit of God. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would drop scales from the eyes of unbelievers and that you would help believers to see rightly the Word of God as we study today. Then we pray for deliverance, Lord. We pray that you would bind the powers of darkness and in these brief few moments of time that you would hold them at bay, that you would move them away from our minds and our hearts and from this very room. And Lord, I pray that your people would rise up and learn from your word that we might rightly worship you and love the Lord Jesus. And then, dear Lord, we pray expectantly. We ask these things believing and trusting that our God is a supernatural God able to deliver his people. And so we love you and we thank you and we bless your holy name, thanking you in advance for what you will do in this time together. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ we do pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, we began a little bit of a series as we looked at some catechism and some questions. And so we begin by saying, what is our only hope in life and death? And we said that the answer to that is that our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but that we belong to God by way of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then last week, we looked at what is God? And the catechism answers by resounding in our ears that God is both creator and sustainer sustainer of everyone and at everything. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is all-powerful in His goodness and in His glory, in His power, in His perfection. He is God alone. Amen? 
Now, you might follow the progression this week and say, well, certainly if our only hope is God and His Savior, and if God is both creator and sustainer of all things, I have heard a little bit about this triune God, this trinity, that God is one and yet God is three, and how do we work through all of that? And so, brothers and sisters, I say to you today, uh, we want to talk a little bit about um, this question today. How many persons are there in the one true and living God. How many persons are there in the one true and living God? And so I ask that you'd stay with me. I need to make some um, affirmations. I need to say some things today uh, from Scripture. And those of you that come on Sundays and you're ready for the punchline of the sermon, you need the takeaway to help you during the week, we will get there. And this text is very much an application-driven text. And so we'll walk out of here a little bit today understanding about what God does. But we need to begin today by understanding who God is. And I submit that to you as application in itself. Far too many sermons, far too many talks, far too many lessons begin with what God has done for us and then hopefully at the end we'll be tagged along who God is. But I would say that to us, when we begin with Scripture in mind and the glory of God in our hearts, we should understand who our God is first. And if we understand who God is and we revel in that and we glory in that and we rejoice in that and we sing in that and we let our hearts be caught up into actually who it is that we serve and who our God is, then all of the application and all of what God has done will simply pour over the cup into the saucer of your life. And rather than just walking away with a few punchlines of how to apply it this week, you should walk out of here today, hopefully through my stammering lips and the power of the scripture and the glory of God and the Spirit of God will work in us so that when we leave, we will say, Our God is great. Amen? That God is to be glorified. God is to be honored. That I am to wait and listen and love Him. And when I understand who God is, then it will naturally flow for what God has done for us. So let me make some statements. You uh, follow along. You can keep some notes. We'll get to this text in a few minutes. Here is the first affirmation that we want to say today. How many persons is there in the one and true God? Well, we must understand, first of all, that there is only one living and true God. There is only one living and true God. The Bible says in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 44 and verse number 6. Jesus says in the New Testament, John 10 and verse number 30, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is Exodus 20 and 3. Then in the New Testament, He says this, Jesus says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. 
The Bible says, now believest that there is one God, you do well. James chapter 2 and verse number 19. Even the devils understand that the Bible teaches there is only one true and living God. The Bible says, we know that no idol is anything in the world and that there is no God but one. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 4. There is but one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6, the Bible says, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. That is the Greek letters for the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22 and verse 13. You see, brothers and sisters, I, I submit to you today that from Genesis to the end of the book of Revelation, the Bible teaches there is only one true and living God. And we serve Him, amen? amen? He is the Lord God, and beside Him there is none other. And you may be in this room today, and you may be affirming that and saying, glory to God, there is only one God. And you may look and laugh, and you may see the foreigners around the world and other countries, and you may laugh and mock and scoff at their gods and say, those are not gods. But I tell you on the authority of Scripture, if anything is coming between you and the God of heaven, it is a God in your life, and you ought to cast it out and repent from it and turn from it. If money is a God, if relationships is a God, if power is a God, if position is a God, if thinking your own pride is a God, if anything comes between you and the living God of heaven, you, my friend, are a sinner before God, and you must cast it out and throw yourself on the mercy of the living God. There is only one God. Hmm. Did you live that way this week? Or did you live as if you were your own God? And so, Steve, I, I did not commit so many terrible sins. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't murder. I didn't cheat. I didn't steal. I, I would simply say that you had anger in your heart, so you're as good as a murderer. And you certainly looked upon a woman to lust, so you're an adulterer in your heart. Certainly we lie, certainly we cheat, certainly we break all the time the Ten Commandments. I would just simply say to us that we live sometimes as if we are our own gods rather than living under the authority and in the fear of and through the mighty grace of the one living true God. It's one thing for us to affirm it through the Scripture. It is another thing for us to realize in our heart that the Bible knocks upon our hearts and says, you as a believer must live every day of your life as if He is the only sole source of authority in all of the universe and you are to bow your life and your job and your family and your friends and your whole self before Him and give Him glory and obedience in life. That's the truth. There is only one living and true God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Holy Scriptures. And I'm asking you, even right now in this room, some of your minds are worshiping at the altar of what you think. You're concerned with everything else rather than being completely consumed with the fact that God is the God of your life. 
Loving Him, worshiping Him, glorifying Him, giving Him reverence and honor as only He deserves. And if your mind is anywhere else other than upon the one living and true God, something is wrong desperately in your soul. Come to Him now. Bow before Him. And live your life in light of the one true God. Here's a second affirmation that we must make. There is only one and living true God, and yet the Bible teaches that there are three persons in this one true and living God. There are three persons within the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. So we have seen that the Scriptures teach that there is but one true and living God. They also teach that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit possess all of the qualities and all of the substance of what it means to be God. So what we would say is that God is unified in His nature, that He is at one. He is unified in His nature of His eternality, of His power, of His wisdom, of His glory. And yet there are three distinct persons within the Trinity, and they come to us as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And each of those three persons have within them all that it means to be God. It is not some sort of a stepladder where you have the Spirit and the Son and the Father. No, all three are co-eternal and co-equal in substance and power. One God manifested to us in three different personages. And all of them are God. First of all, the Bible teaches that the Father is God. So the Scripture says this, To us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. The Apostle Paul, Paul, an apostle, through Jesus Christ and God our Father. Galatians 1, 1. There is one God and Father of us all. Ephesians 4 and verse number 6. At the season, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Matthew 11, verse number 25. The Father has and possesses all that it means to be God. And so likewise, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, He possesses all of the qualities and all of the nature of what it means to be God. The Bible says, Christ who is over all, God blessed forever, Romans 9, 5. The Bible says this, For in Him that is in Christ, for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is Colossians 2 and verse number 9. And the Bible says that Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, John 20 and verse number 28. I and the Father are one, John 10 and verse number 30. Brothers and sisters, I would say to you that the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, He has the humanity that identifies with us, but never make a mistake. Jesus Christ is fully God. He was not just a good man. He was not just a good rabbi. He was not just a good teacher. He was not some ethereal force. He is God, very God. Everything that the Father is in substance and nature, so is the Son. Co-eternal, co-powerful, co-knowledge. And yet the Bible teaches that the Spirit of the living God also possesses this. Peter said to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit 
Thou hast not lied unto men, but you have lied to God. Acts 5, verse 3 and 4. But when the Comforter, that is the Spirit of God, when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. John 15, verse number 25. wasn't sure if I'd have time to do this today, and I'm still not sure, but take your Bible and turn over to Matthew chapter 28. I'm having a good time. If you're bored, we'll be done in a little while. We'll get to the uh, 2 Corinthians passage. Matthew chapter number 28. Let me, let me submit to you this as well, that every single word of Scripture counts, and you should understand it well. Look at Matthew 28, and this will finish this point. There are three persons in the one triune living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are co-eternal. That, that is, that they are co-equal in the nature of God. They are one God manifested to us in three persons. Don't ever forget that. Notice what this says here as we bleed into this uh, third affirmation. Notice here in chapter 28, verse number, uh, verse number 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Is that what your Bible says? If it does, throw it down. baptizing them in the name. It is singular. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is, they are one in essence. It is not three different gods. It is not a tripartite God. It is one in essence. In the name. And now watch here. In your Bible, does it say in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit? Or does it have a definite article in front of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Right. If it doesn't, Come see me. <laughs> Baptizing them in the name unified of the Father and the Holy Spirit and in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is one in unity and three in person. They are co-equal in their Godship and they are manifested to us in their distinct personalities. So let me give you this third affirmation from this. Simply, we would say today that the triune God is unified in nature and distinct in person. And you might have come here today, maybe you're a believer, maybe you just showed up and you're a little tired, you had a long week, but you need to pay attention to this. That we will get to the application, but before we get to what God has done and before we get to about how to apply it to our lives, we all, I listen from the depths of my soul, I want you to walk out of here today and even if you don't know how to apply it, I want your heart to be strangely warm that the God of eternal, uh, of eternity, He may be beyond reason, but He is not in, He is not contradicting reason and he is glorious and he is wonderful and it is far beyond being able to be understood completely. You serve a mighty God, not a small God, not an insignificant God. When you leave here today, all the problems that you are facing are nothing compared to his greatness. He is able. I'm in fifth gear. I better back it down to fourth gear for you, all right? The triune God is unified. Listen, He is at one in His nature. And yet He is distinct in His persons. I don't have time to show you all of this today, but just take a note of this. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. 
You will find this oneness and this distinctiveness in the account of the Lord's baptism. We find as a clear teaching concerning the reality of the Trinity as anyone can reasonably ask for. Christ the Son stood there in human form and was visible to all of the people. And the voice of God the Father spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Christ was seen as that of the dove upon His head. There, right in the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the oneness in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And yet the Father speaks from heaven. The Son is living upon the earth. And the Spirit of God is descending between the lover and the beloved. In the announcement of the birth of Jesus, Luke chapter number 1 and verse number 35, there you see these distinct personalities again. In the announcement of the birth, three divine persons came into view. The Bible says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. Wherefore also the holy thing which is begotten shall be called the Son of God. Here we read, In the coming of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Most High, upon the child in the manger who is Jesus Christ the Lord. He is God in one nature. And He is God in three persons. And once again, for sake of time, in the final discourse of our Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter 14 through chapter 17, Christ speaks to and of the Father and has promised to send another comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would guide and teach and inspire the disciples. Here again is the personality and the deity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God. Do you not see that at His birth, at His baptism, and close to His death, He reveals Himself as the one true and living God manifested to us in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's get to today's text. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter number... 13. Let me read this text again for us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here's another affirmation that we want to agree with today. The Scripture unfolds the mystery of our triune God, the Trinity, in correlation with the mystery of redemption. I'll say that again for you to pick up because it is so very important for you to understand this. The Bible, it unfolds to us the understanding of the Trinity in direct relationship to the unfolding of the mystery of the redemption of human beings. You will not find the teaching of the Trinity to be found in some, uh, 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 some sort of formulaic definition. In fact, what we have here in 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is probably the clearest and most distinct representation of the Trinity that you will find. But neither, mind you, will you find it in a compilation of distinct uh, texts somewhere in the Bible that are thrown together. That is not the way that the Bible unfolds it to us. No, the Word of God unfolds to us the majesty of one God in three persons as it really 
relates to the work of redemption. From the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane to the eternal Garden of Restoration in Revelation chapter number 20, we find that God unfolds His nature to us as He shows us redemption. It is not a New Testament doctrine. It is an Old Testament doctrine as well. In fact, the Old Testament richly grounds us in the oneness, the unity of God. But as one author said this, listen to this. I love this about the Old Testament. It is a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. And the introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not there before, but it brings out into the clear view all of what was there to begin with. When you read the Old Testament, you are not reading about a different God that somehow changes into the New Testament into Father, Son, and Spirit. You are reading about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but it is in a dimly lit room focusing upon the unity of God Himself. And when you come into the New Testament and you see all of the authors looking back, you can see clearly now with the lights turned off what was already there all along. Genesis chapter number 3 and verse number 15, the first mention of the gospel that he would bruise the head of Christ, but that he would crush the head of the serpent. The Messiah is revealed. And yes, the Spirit of God descending upon people in the Old Testament. It is evidence and it says to us that one day in the New Testament in the book of Acts that the Spirit of God would descend on his church and all of the fullness of the Trinity would be shown to us. It's unfolded through Scripture. So look at the text today. In this text before us, we see the unfolding of the Trinity in this work of redemption. Do you not see that there? It is the Son who brings us the grace of redemption through His own sacrifice. Earlier in this book, it says, He who is rich for our sakes became poor that we might become the richness through Him. Notice the work of the Father is the love of God. The work of grace and the Son brings us into contact with the love of God the Father. The Bible says that God is love. The Bible says herein is love, not that we loved Him, but that He first loved us and gave His Son for us. The Bible says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Trinity comes into view as we come through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as he dies on Calvary and raised again for our redemption we come into contact with the love of a living God who did not have to love us who did not have to care for us who could have started again but he chose to redeem the people who would believe in him and how does he do that the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit look in the verse through the grace of Christ and the love of the Father draws us into unity within the Trinity and into fellowship with other believers. You see the word fellowship there. And the Holy Spirit is drawing us into this fellowship. What it means, it is a two-pronged approach here. It means that God, the Holy Spirit, does His work of redemption in people, convicting us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He draws us and woos us to the cross. And when Jesus is high and lifted up, He draws all men unto me. And the Bible says, no man comes except for the Father which has sent me. Draw Him, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Draw people to Calvary's cross and as we believe on him he baptizes us into the relationship of the Trinity 
all that God has in His glory and His majesty, He welcomes us into that unity. And He transforms men and women and boys and girls into the church of God, not only welcoming us into that unity, but breeding and pooling unity and fellowship among His people so that whether we are black or white or red or yellow or anything in between, whether we come from the rich side of town or the poor side of town, whether we have the greatest intellect or we don't have any intellect, if we have Christ, the Spirit of God and the love of the Father draws us together. We are in this room today and we get along and we love each other, not because of everything else that is out there or even anything that is in us, but because of Him alone. So let me see if I can move now to some applications. Give me just a couple of minutes. He is unity with diversity. And we should have unity with diversity in our congregation. That we ought to be unified in the love of the Father and the grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and that we ought to be made up of people from all different kinds of backgrounds and that we should come together in unity out of diversity through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is bringing grace that is unmerited favor to people. And we should be grace-filled people. We stand in a state, a community, a tradition of grace, and we offer it to every man, woman, boy, or girl out there who wants to have Somebody asked, uh, somebody asked Charles Spurgeon one time about uh, being Calvinist and uh, predestination. and uh, This isn't a discussion of that today. I'd be glad to have that at some point. But it, he said it doesn't matter. Listen, whether Calvinist or not, my job, is not to, my job is not to run behind everybody and tear off their jacket and find whether they have a mark of election on them or not. My job is simply to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and let God do His work in the hearts of His people. And I submit to you today that we must be the kind of people that leave here and we have a burning desire to tell unbelievers about the grace of Jesus Christ. His love is being shed abroad in our hearts. And the Bible says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. His Spirit is drawing us into fellowship and creating it among the diverse people. We should be fellowshipping and caring for others and breaking down all of those middle walls of partition between us, those who do not think like us. In just a few minutes, man, I was speaking with a brother, friend of mine on the phone. He's down in South Carolina. Man, he just we just we're working through some things theologically. I guess that's what pastors do. You just have like theological discussions sometimes. But it was good. It, it got real practical for a minute. And we were talking, and he just in the course of a conversation, he said, "Steve, you ever notice how it is? Like, is you ever notice how it is? Like, even in the workforce, that uh, you'll always find like men hanging out with women and women hanging out with women. You will find people uh, of the uh, of same ethnicities kind of gravitating toward each other. And it just seems like not all the time, but it just seems like the natural disposition is to be around people that are like you." And I said, yeah. And he said, that's what we're trying to kill. The reason why it feels so natural is because we're such sinners.
Now you wrestle with that this week like I have. I want God to kill that in me. I want to love people like He loved them. I'm going to give you a few thoughts here of application. So let me just let me just say a few words negatively and a few words positively. When we fail to have unity, we misrepresent God. Now, why don't you just take that in this week? When we fail to live in unity with each other, it's not just that we misrepresent God. We distort Him to the world. So when lost people peek within the halls of our church and they see fighting and fussing and gossiping and all kinds of that kind of garbage, they look not only poorly upon us, but they, see, they say, Ah, oh, you see? Their God's really not that good. Number two, when we fail to love, we misrepresent God. It's not that we have to dwell in uniformity, that we're all cookie cutters and we all have to agree on everything all the time. It's unity. And the way that we come about getting toward that unity is through love. I wish some of you would have been here on Wednesday night. You should ask some of them about the uh, baby burrito illustration. <laughs> love, uh, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. The word for bear means to cover up. And I was telling them about how when uh, James was really little, uh, learned how to put that blanket in a diamond shape, put the baby in there, put one over and tuck it under the corner, pull the other one up, put it under the shoulder, tuck it around. Love covers brothers and sisters. Doesn't attack them. Love believes all things. It doesn't mean that love's gullible. It means that love chooses to believe the best about your brother or sister. And how very often we choose to believe the worst about them. When you don't love brothers and sisters, you don't love God. And you misrepresent Him. I would say this. When we fail to share the grace of Jesus, we misrepresent God. That's not a heavy-handed ball bat to hit you over the head and say you didn't share the gospel this week. It's just a reminder for you and for me that we've been called to share the grace of Jesus Christ with people who are unbelievers. So let's go out this week and let's represent our God well by looking for opportunities, whether they be through the mail, whether they be through friendships or co-work, whatever it might be. Let's look for ways to share the grace. Let me just finish with this. On a positive note, when we do these things,
So when we have the unity of the Spirit and the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we do these things, we become a living doxology. Not just a traditional song, but a living testimony to our God. So what's the takeaway? I want you to leave here today praising Him and living for Him. And if you don't know it, I want you to bow before Him and ask Him to be your God and Savior. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me just for a moment? piano is just going to play lightly for a minute. Why don't you just take a moment to pray. Talk to this Lord. Talk to this amazing, <laughs> this unique and amazing, awe-inspiring one God in three persons who has been revealed to us in the plan of salvation, Father, Son, and Spirit. Why don't you just pray right now? Maybe, maybe what you need to do is just pause for a moment and say, God, I, I just want to praise you. I remember two years ago, sitting with a journal, and I was praying and, and praising God for all that He had done for me. It was like God struck me in the heart and said, why don't you take a half hour and just stretch your brain thinking about who I am and praise me for that. Would you praise Him for who He is? Why don't you decide when you live, you leave here today that you're going to live for Him. You're going to give the grace of Jesus to people. That you're going to show love and be in unity with your brothers and sisters. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.